Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Tim. I'm the senior minister at St John's, and uh, we're going to be unpacking uh, that passage together. I'm going to focus on the first part. I had the intention of dealing with the entirety of it when I started writing the sermon. Um, so if you're worried that I'm 15 minutes in and I've only dealt with a few verses, don't worry, don't panic. That's okay. We're starting this series uh, today, as Andrew's already said, on the generous life. Uh, thinking about what does a life of generosity look like? Uh, how do we become more generous as people? What habits of life can we build in which will make us more generous? That might help by defining uh, what exactly generosity is. Um, a good dictionary definition of, of generous uh, might be this, showing a readiness to give more of something than is strictly necessary or expected. Now you notice as you, as you look at that, the generosity is uh, first and foremost uh, an attitude before it is action. Um, notice that the definition there speaks of a readiness to give. Um, we might be willing in our hearts, in our, in our minds, to give something and not actually have it, but there's still a generosity there, a willingness to give it up if we had it. And conversely, you might actually uh, give a lot away but do so grudgingly, which is not generosity. Uh, when we think of generosity, we often think in terms of money, uh, that we show a readiness to give uh, financial assistance to other people. But generosity, of course, covers a range of things that we might give away. Uh, time, uh, energy, uh, perhaps information rather than keeping these things to ourselves or using them only for ourselves, being willing to share them with others. And in this series, we want to think about generosity more generally, uh, about how generosity applies to the whole of our lives, uh, that we might be a people who show a readiness to give more than is perhaps necessary or expected uh, in terms of our generous service, uh, our generous hospitality, our generous relationships, and yes, through generous giving. And uh, a confession that uh, part of my motivation for doing a series on generosity uh, is because if I'm honest with myself and examine my own heart, I recognise that generosity is something that I need to grow in more and more. Uh, I could blame my Scottish heritage. Uh, my mother's maiden name is MacArthur. Um, I don't know where that comes from, the idea that Scottish people aren't generous people. Sorry to the people of Scottish heritage that I've just offended by saying that. Um, but if I'm honest, I find it hard at times to be generous. My instinctive reaction in situations is often, what's it going to cost me? What am I going to lose? What am I risking by doing this? Rather than, how can I give away to bless and benefit other people through this. So I recognise, as I look at my own heart, that I need God to do a good work in my heart and in my life to make me a more generous person, because that's certainly what I want to be. And I wonder whether you share the same desire. Is generosity something that you seek after in your own life and in different areas of your life? Um, my observation is that generosity is a highly admired trait in our world. If someone's described as generous, then that is a wonderful compliment. 
uh, except perhaps when we use the phrase, they have a generous figure, um, which is a euphemism for something else. But generally, to describe a person as generous is a positive thing, it's something that we want to be, um, and it's something that we admire in other people. So much so that, uh, did you know that the University of Notre Dame in the USA is undertaking a multi-million dollar research project called the Generosity Initiative. So they've gathered scholars from a whole range of disciplines to explore the science of generosity from a number of different angles. Um, that might sound strange, trying to look at generosity through a microscope or something like that, but what they are looking at is the fact that our world would be such a better place if there was more generosity, if people were willing to give to others, not to just hoard and hold to their, to the, things to themselves, but to give to other people, that would make a huge impact in our world. And they want to know, what is it that motivates generosity? How does it work? Now, as Christian people, we believe, of course, in a generous God. As we reflect on the character of God and the things that God gives and God does, uh, we recognise that God absolutely shows a readiness to give more than is strictly necessary or expected. Uh, you need go no further than to look out at the beautiful creation that we have, that God has given us, to see his generosity in giving us an abundance and a variety and a beauty to enjoy within his crea creation. What generosity that is. And of course... Uh, we focus most especially on the generosity of God in saving us through the Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have uh, Jesus, God the Son, who gives himself for us to rescue us and to bring us back into relationship with God. Such generosity that flows from the heart of God that we want to reflect as Christian people, reflecting the character of God by being generous as he is generous. So let's look at God's word together and over these next four weeks we're going to look at different passages uh, in Luke's gospel and see what they have to teach us about generosity. And today we're thinking especially about generous service. I'm going to focus on the interactions that Jesus has here with three would-be disciples, people who come to Jesus and want to serve and be generous in their service. Um, Start with verse 57. This is what we read. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. So this man who comes is a volunteer. Uh, it's not that Jesus calls him. He comes to Jesus and he says, I will follow you and I'll follow you wherever you go. It's like he's putting no restrictions on his willingness to follow Jesus. It looks like very generous service, willing service, generous service that he's offering to Jesus. Uh, and if I was Jesus, um, I would be pretty excited. Here's this guy who's coming and he's willing and he wants to go with me. I'd be, sure, come along, sign up, let's go. But Jesus actually warns the man to be careful what he's signing up for. Foxes have dens and birds have nests but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus is saying, uh, these animals, they have homes, they have places that they can go to, but I don't. I'm on the move in the service of God. 
And in this part of Luke's Gospel, Jesus has actually set his eyes on Jerusalem and he's on the road travelling to Jerusalem where he'll go to the cross. And so he's saying to this man, be careful what you sign up for because there is a cost in following me and it may mean leaving your place of comfort and moving somewhere else to serve. Jesus is saying that he doesn't have a home to go to like the animals do and that that's what this man is signing up to do. And there's a challenge for each of us here as we're thinking about generous service. If we're thinking of saying to Jesus, we will go wherever you go or we will go wherever you send us to go. We will go wherever we're needed, Jesus. If that's the generous service that we're offering, then we need to count the cost of what we're offering because the message of Jesus, of course, needs to go out to every corner of the globe. Are we willing to say, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go or wherever you will send me? We have a number of linked missionaries uh, in our church uh, community. We have uh, the Gifford family, there's a picture of them on the screen, who are uh, working in Barcelona uh, at the moment. Uh, we've got the Beers in the Northern Territory. We've got now the Weichart family out in Strathfield, say, near Bendigo. And in each of the cases of uh, these linked missionaries, uh, they have said to Jesus, um, we will go where you send us to go, and they've gone. And there's a cost in having done that. It's meant moving away from family, moving away from friends, um, taking children away from grandparents. It's meant learning new cultures, new languages. Uh, it means for them not really knowing where your home is. This is one of the challenges and something we need to be conscious of as we support and pray for our mission partners. Where is home? Is it Barcelona or Melbourne? Is it the Northern Territory or Melbourne? And particularly for missionary kids, so-called third culture kids, where do they actually belong? We often say when our link missionaries come back to Australia for their deputation, um, oh, it must be great to be home. It's great to have you home. But for them, it doesn't feel like home. Home is where they spend most of their time, Barcelona or um, wherever it might be. And there's this challenge. There's a real sense uh, that Jesus' words about foxes having holes and birds having nests, but the Son of Man having nowhere to lay his head applies in a very particular way to them. And it's something that we really need to be conscious of in our support of mission and missionaries and the children um, who are part of those families, especially in our prayers and in our support. But even if we don't head off to the mission field, there's a challenge here of being willing to listen to Jesus and to follow him and to go wherever he would go. Um, that might even mean being willing to walk across a room. Here's the scenario. Let me paint a picture for you. After church today, uh, you've got your cup of coffee and you're having a lovely chat with uh, the friends that you love spending time with and talking with. And on the other side of the room, you see someone holding a cuppa, standing on their own. You've never seen them before. They're drinking their cuppa. They're looking a little awkward and uncomfortable, nervously around them. What do you do? Do you say, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you will go? Do you walk across the room to welcome and to include this person that you don't know? 
Because even to do that, you're leaving a situation of safety, aren't you? You're leaving people that you know, you're leaving people that you're comfortable with, you know where the conversation is going to go and it's a safe place with the people that you're talking with. Um, if you walk across the room, you put yourself into an awkward situation perhaps. What if I don't know what to say? What if we've got nothing in common? What if I put my foot in it? What if I ask them, so are you new today and they've been coming for six months? What if I do that? Is it worth the risk? Now, we kind of laugh at ourselves, don't we? Okay, we're talking about a foyer, for crying out loud, walking across a foyer um, to talk to someone, not packing our bags and our coffin to head to the you know, deepest, darkest Africa. But generous service is like that, isn't it? In small ways and in big ways, generous service is about leaving comfort and security in some way, a situation of safety, to go where Jesus wants us to go as his followers, to welcome the stranger, to love those that we don't know, to reach out a hand in friendship, to actually get our feet moving, whether it's across the room, across a few suburbs, across the city or across the globe, to go where Jesus wants us to go, to go to the places that Jesus would go to offer love and care and service. The challenge for all of us is, are we willing to say to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go? Where's Jesus calling us to go? The second man that interacts with Jesus in this passage is not a volunteer. The first guy said, Jesus, I will follow you. In verse 59, Jesus calls this second man and he says two words to him, follow me. Now, if that sounds familiar to you, then good, it's supposed to, because it's an echo of Jesus' call to the first disciples, the twelve who have called to follow him earlier in the Gospels. Peter and Andrew, the fishermen, there they are um, on the beach. Jesus says to them, come follow me. And they leave their nets, their livelihood, and they follow him. James and John, also fishermen, Jesus calls them and we're told without delay they leave their father and the other hired hands in the boat and they, welcome, and they follow him. Then Levi, the tax collector, sitting at work in his booth collecting taxes, Jesus says two words to him, follow me, and he does. He gets up, leaves his job and follows Jesus. So we've heard this before as we read the gospel. We've heard Jesus say to people, follow me, and we've seen the immediacy of the response as people have heard those words and they've done it. But this time, the response is different. The man says, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. This man has a reason not to follow Jesus immediately. And it's a good reason, isn't it? I mean, particularly in that culture, at that time, there was a real responsibility to respect and honour your parents. That was of the utmost importance. Now, people debate in this uh, situation, has the man's father died yet? Okay? Because if his father's already dead, what's he doing out on the road following Jesus around for Jesus to call him and then to go away? And so people suggest that perhaps he's talking here about uh, caring for an ageing uh, parent. 
He's saying, I need, I've got responsibilities, I need to look after my father. And then once he's died, and once I've buried him, then Jesus, I will come and follow you. So it could be a delay of years before he's available to serve. We also can't see this man's heart. We don't know what's motivating his excuse, whether it's genuine obligation to family and care for his father, or whether he's seeking to avoid the genuine call of Jesus on his life here. But Jesus is pretty direct in his response. He's calling him to follow, and he wants him now. The dead will have to bury their own dead, they will have to take care of themselves because he needs this man now to proclaim the kingdom of God. It's a pretty challenging response of Jesus. It seems uncaring as he speaks to this man. But I think it highlights for us the importance of Jesus' mission, particularly in this moment, that people need to hear about him and even good excuses, even the best of excuses, can't compete with the direct call of Jesus to follow him. There's nothing more important than following after Jesus and serving him. And let's be honest, there have been many would-be followers of Jesus who, if they're honest, know that Jesus is calling on them to follow him or to do a particular task for him. There's a clear sense of the call of God to follow and to do something, but who finds some reason, some excuse not to do it. Uh, Speaking personally, uh, I had a very strong sense that Jesus was calling me to follow him uh, by working in pastoral ministry. That it comes through my own prayer and discernment and from the input of others speaking into my life. But it exactly the time that I had to make a decision to uh, go to theological college, to make that step and to do it, um, I was offered the dream job doing something else. Um, I'd been uh, studying uh, at the University of Sydney and I got offered the dream job uh, as a lecturer in the department, something that would probably only come up uh, every decade or so. And I was very tempted, let me tell you, to take that option rather than to listen to the call of God into pastoral ministry. And I had plenty of ways to justify it. Here was this uh, dream. I spiritualised it. Here's this dream job. It's landed in my lap. It must be from God. Those sorts of things. But at the same time, I had this strong sense that God was calling me into pastoral ministry. And I'm glad I had some wise friends who eyeballed me at that moment and said... We think that God is calling you uh, into ministry. And I knew when I, when I was honest with myself that that was what Jesus was saying. Follow me in this way. Here is the job that I want you to do. Listen to me and do it. And not to have followed him in that moment would have been disobedience. Now, it's not always that clear. I know sometimes it's hard for us to know exactly what God is calling us to do. But we need to listen to the voice of Jesus. We need to ask the question, what are you calling me to do? What is it that you want me to follow you and to do? And when we know what Jesus is calling us to do, when we have a sense of what the job is that he wants us to do, it demands our obedience. It requires us to give generous service to him, to listen to Jesus 
In that moment, we can make excuses, we can find excuses, we can find plenty of reasons not to do it. But at the end of the day, Jesus calls us to follow him, to be obedient to him, to listen to his voice, and when we hear it, to obey and for that to be the priority. Finally, we've got a third man who interacts with Jesus in verse 61. This man, again, is a volunteer, and he says to Jesus, I will follow you, Lord, but... But, first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. So he's volunteered himself, generous service, he's offering to Jesus, but he's added his own condition... And again, we hear this and we think, not unreasonably, this guy wants to go and say goodbye to his family before he heads off on the road with Jesus. Now again, there should be an echo here of something that has been heard before. And Jesus' uh, listeners would have heard that echo before because they knew their Old Testament so well. So back in 1 Kings chapter 19 we have an interaction between the prophet Elijah who calls Elisha to come and follow him and to eventually take his place as the prophet to Israel. And Elijah, when he finds Elisha, Elisha is is ploughing his parents' field. He's got a team of uh, uh, oxen. There's a bit of a drawing there. He's got uh, a yoke of oxen there. He's got the plough and he's actually ploughing the field when Elisha comes up behind him, put his cloak on him as a way of symbolising that he is to follow and to take on this role of service and to be the next prophet to Israel. And when he does that, Elisha's response is, let me kiss my father and mother goodbye and then I will come with you. And Elijah agrees to the, uh, Elijah agrees to the request. So Elisha goes and he farewells his family and when he comes back, what does he do? He kills the oxen, chops them up into pieces, then he takes the wood from the plough and makes a bonfire out of it and cooks the dead oxen as a sacrifice to God and they have uh, a meal of the oxen together. So you see that in this interaction, everything that Jesus says has this uh, echo of something that has happened before. This other story lies in the background. Uh, If Jesus in this moment is denying this man's request to go and farewell his family, then it's a contrast to what has already happened and it highlights that the call of Jesus, the kingdom of God in this moment, is even more urgent, more necessary than when Elijah is calling Elisha. The call is even greater than that call to be the prophet in Israel. But it's also not absolutely clear that Jesus is denying the man's request here either. Jesus' reference here to putting your hand to the plough could be calling to mind exactly what Elisha did um, in his response after he had farewelled his parents that in breaking up the plough and killing the oxen, he was making a clean break with the past. In deciding to follow Jesus, he was turning his back on his previous way of life and following wholeheartedly. Once he had decided he was going to do it, he was not going to look back. He'd metaphorically burned his bridges by literally 
burning his plough. And Jesus is saying here, once you put your hand to the plough in the service of me and of the kingdom of God, don't look back. Look straight ahead. Keep your eye on the task. Now, if you were ploughing a field uh, in those days, uh, very rocky ground in that part of the world, if you didn't keep your eyes straight ahead, you're in big trouble. The plough could hit a rock and uh, head off in a different direction. You'd end up with, you know, windy uh, furrows which were no good um, for planting at all. So the image here is a strong one. If you're ploughing, if you're doing a job, you need to keep your eyes fixed on what you're doing straight ahead. Don't keep looking back to what might have been, to what life used to be like, but to give your generous service to Jesus, to the kingdom of God. Do the task that has been decided on. Keep your eyes on it and don't get distracted by other things looking back to what might have been. But I feel like I need to say a word here about failure. See, some of you might hear these words from Jesus about anyone who looks back not being fit for service in the kingdom of God, and that for you might invoke a feeling of of guilt or of judgment. You might think, I've kind of done this. I've kind of got distracted along the way. I was wholeheartedly following Jesus, and then I've gone off track or um, turned away or there was a time when I did feel like I heard Jesus calling me to do something and I, and I found an excuse or I found another way not to do it. What does it mean for me? Is Jesus saying that because I've turned away um, that I'm no longer fit for service in the kingdom of God? Well, I want you to remember that one of Jesus' closest friends did exactly that. Peter, Jesus' closest friend, part of the inner circle, who'd been called by Jesus, who'd immediately, as we saw, left his previous life behind to follow Jesus. When Jesus is arrested, Peter turns his back. He looks away, he abandons Jesus, he denies him and he leaves him alone in his hour of need. After the resurrection, as Jesus and Peter come back together, what does Jesus say? Nope. You turned your back. You're no longer fit for the service of the kingdom of God. No. Jesus forgives him. Jesus restores him. And Jesus reinstates him in leadership and service of the kingdom of God. And Peter spends the rest of his life in generous service of Jesus, announcing the good news of the risen Jesus and the coming of the kingdom of God. Failure wasn't final because of who it is that we're serving, Jesus, who is full of love and grace and forgiveness. And I want to emphasise this point, because I don't want us to go away today thinking that generous service, that what's being spoken about today as we're speaking about generous service, means tiring hard work in the church. Uh, Sometimes, oftentimes, we make this mistake in the church. We load up church members with lots of jobs to do, lots of things that you've got to do, be on this roster, do this job, do all of these things. And the demands and the busyness and the weight of church weigh us down and we lose any joy of following Jesus and serving him generously. 
we've been very conscious of this at St John's. Um, part of our um, part of our vision uh, has been to try and simplify our church structures and to cut back on things to have less busyness in our midst. And this year especially, we've been focusing on what does emotionally healthy spirituality look like? How do we make sure that we stop, that we rest, that it's not all work, 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 do, 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 but we have time to be with God? That's why we experimented with our six to six Sabbath day together where we would just stop as a way of experiencing this and building this into our life as a community. We need to make sure that we slow down for loving connection with Jesus, not just working for him. Because what is it that Jesus is calling each of these people to do and what is Jesus calling each one of us to do? Is he saying, come and work hard in the church, come and work for the kingdom of God? No, he's saying, follow me. Follow me. It's a personal call. It's a relational call. It's not just about hard, tiresome labour for the sake of it. It's about following Jesus in close connection with Jesus, in relationship with Jesus, and out of that relationship giving ourselves in generous service of him. But if the work is burdensome and becoming something that stifles the relationship with Jesus, then we've got a problem, don't we? Because this is about personally following Jesus, going after him, serving with him. We need to prioritise the personal because that will empower the service. As Jesus goes on to say in chapter 10, verse 2, the harvest is plentiful. There is much that needs to be done. There's many people waiting to hear the good news of Jesus and follow him, and the workers are few. There is a need for generous service of Jesus. There is a need for us to put up our hands to ask the question, where should I go? What should I do? How can I serve? Jesus, what do you need me to do? And all of us are called, as we read here, to pray. All of us are called at the very least, to ask the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the field, praying that God would raise up different workers for different jobs, praying that God would inspire people with the message of Jesus and call them to follow, praying that God's kingdom would grow and flourish in all parts of the world. So the challenge for each of us is, will we pray that workers would be provided for the harvest field? And will we recognise that in praying, that actually means that we need to think about our own response, asking Jesus personally what it is that he wants me to do. How do I go after Jesus in relationship with him and serve where he's calling me to go? Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the privilege it is that you you do call us to follow you. You do want us to be in relationship with you and uh, the announcement of the kingdom of God and the service of you uh, is entrusted 
uh, to us who love you and who are your disciples. So we pray that you would challenge us today about what part it is you want us to play, how we can generously serve you in our own way. And we pray that this would always flow out of a relationship with you, a love for you, a joy in serving you and giving generously of our lives that other people might come to know your beauty, your love and your grace. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.